Hello lovely third culture kids. Um, I want to do a quick check-in today about an issue that I hear coming up a lot and it's related to something I've talked about before um, around social capital. I think I've talked about it before. Somebody tell me if I've talked about it before. Um, Social capital being the idea of um, the degree of social... um, weight, impact, resources that we have to hand. So in societal terms, um, social capital is you're more likely to have it if you are um, of a certain status, possibly depending on the context if you're a man. And I say depending on context um, because there are certain environments where you have more social weight or impact you're more likely to be listened to if if you are a woman but you know we're talking broad strokes here um so if i try and land this in tck terms um i'm remembering my experiences returning to england as a child from niger and attending the local primary school i had zero social capital (laughs) apart from the fact i was white actually let's acknowledge that Um, my accent told people I was from somewhere else. Um, I didn't know what the fashions were. Um, I didn't eat the right foods. I didn't say the right things. I I didn't have the right interests. Um, so in terms of social capital, I had very little to offer in terms of resources, Um, Nobody wants to swap crisps with the kid that has the wrong crisps Um, or, um, you know, in terms in terms of those kind of childhood politics of who you invite to your birthday party, you know, nobody would gain anything particularly from transactions with me because socially in that moment I was very poor Um, and it can feel strange putting an economic kind of transactional um, filter over um, social relationships. But there's a lot of research and arguments that suggest this is exactly what happens. Um, we all know who the popular kid in the class is, right? And we know that if they like us, um, we're in. That popular kid has a lot of social capital. They have power. Essentially, we're talking about power. And a lot of TCK's experience, not necessarily constant, but frequent encounters with a tip in the balance of social capital, where being the new kid or being somehow, again, in inverted commas, a kind of wrong for their environment, out of place, that... It's very difficult to get any traction socially um, where there's lack of social capital. Now, for some TCKs, this might actually be inverted in certain contexts where um, 
So, for example, in Niger, I witnessed the kids who had just spent time in America um, coming with a lot of social capital. They had the right clothes, they had the right fashions. um, And similarly, because of race um, or because of parental occupation, we might find ourselves on a move, the new kid, with a lot of social capital. Um, Everybody immediately identifies you simply because of certain social markers as the next interesting thing and so that transition might actually be rather delightful for you because you're in you're it you've got all the power um what i want to talk about today regarding social capital is something that keeps getting flagged in sessions with third culture kids where we find ourselves looking at some points in their stories where they are finding themselves insecure or feeling really uncomfortable um, accepting help or support Um, accepting favours and asking for favours. Essentially, moving from a story where they're an island to a story where they are a member of the community, but not a member of the community as helper. A lot of us grow up with massive parts of our identities linked to being the helpers. Um, And this isn't very surprising. If our parents were missionaries or military or humanitarians or diplomats, um, we witnessed a lot of helping in some form or another. Um, And we become very um, attuned to that as an identity. What is less familiar to us is to be on the other side of that equation. Um, And so receiving favours or asking favours becomes really unsafe for us emotionally. Because we are revealing our lack of social capital, we're revealing our need, and we are making ourselves vulnerable to what feels like a very dangerous power dynamic. We don't want to be the needy one in a relationship, or rather we don't trust what could happen if we are. The risk of ostracization is huge in our minds. Um, we've kind of one way that I've framed it for myself is this need to bring added value. So whatever is expected of me, I need to go one extra to secure my social place. And I think that's the case. That's a practice a lot of us pick up. It's not again. Not I think. I know. I hear this from you. Um, this is a practice a lot of us pick up where we kind of need to to hit those bonus points of social contribution to make up for a lot of the the lacks we feel we bring so maybe I worry I don't have a lot to bring to conversation at this party because I don't know all the pop references um, and I haven't been long in a community so I'm going to bring the biggest um, housewarming gift I'm going to bring not one but two plants Um, And I'm going to not just um, come to help set up, I'm going to help clean up as well. Um, Because 
I need to to offer extra in order to be welcomed. That's the algorithm a lot of us are carrying around in our heads. And a lot of us have got a fair amount of data for this this, um, equation that we're operating within working. Who doesn't want the person who helps clean up come to their party? The trouble is, is we often then lean into these behaviours and we start to attribute all of our social relational success to the fact that we're useful. And the only way of knowing if people like us for who we are is to start to withdraw from that impulse of needing to always be the giver. And that is terrifying. Because if we start to rebalance the equation into something more even keel or equal, there is a risk that the people who have enjoyed our extra will go elsewhere for their social needs. And that is a pain a lot of us know so well that we are so loath to test it. Um, Which can leave us in this exhausting cycle of being extra, becoming very loved very often, um, and then living in constant fear nevertheless that people don't really like us. They like what we do for them. And I want to talk about all the ways that this, just briefly, the ways that the kind of focus on giving and not taking can show up. Money, finances, maybe you are always the one who reaches for your wallet when a meal has been shared in a restaurant. Um, and you've got your eye on the tally, not to make sure it's even or that you're paid back, but to make sure that if the scales tip, they tip in the side of you paying more. Or perhaps in terms of food, you and your friend hang out in each other's homes all the time, but you have this absolute belief that you must have snacks readily to hand at all times, even though your friend doesn't. Um, Maybe you're the one who always makes the cups of tea and coffee. Maybe you're the one who always carves out time in your schedule. Maybe you're the one planning events and get-togethers and initiating that. I want to invite you here not to do anything drastic because we'll shock our systems. Let's face it, this is terrifying. Um, But to do some journaling, do some reflecting. Um, And when I say journaling, I'm talking about scribbling on the back of an envelope or write, you know, if you journal regularly, great, use that. Um or in a notebook, or using a notes app on your phone. Just getting your thoughts out of your head into full sentences, basically. You know, what are you happy to give in your relationships? Because there's what you're giving, right? What are you happy to give? Versus what do you feel obliged to give? And this is going to differ between your relationships, right? You might need to put certain, use certain friends as case studies or, or a partner or a child. You know, what are you happy to give there? And then, what are you happy to receive? 
what is comfortable to experience them doing for you. You might find that there's very specific things on that list. You might find it's very difficult to write anything down. Um, one of the things I observe is that if I have let time go so far as to let a friend be the first one to suggest meeting up, I feel instant guilt. Because what that tells me is I'm late making that suggestion myself. So while I'm happy to spend time with the friend, if I'm honest, I'm not happy to receive a request for time. Because it pokes at something in me that says, they're contributing, you're late. And it can be really, really helpful to just recognise that, that reflexive impulse to that, that, that sort of reveals or betrays our, our self-expectations. But spend some time just observing those in yourself. And then I'd invite you to practice believing people when they offer something to you. Like I've just suggested, my instant belief is that I've been deficient somehow. I've not paid them enough attention. They're unhappy with me. They're feeling neglected. What I could do instead is believe that when somebody messages and says, hey, Missy, it'd be nice to hang out. That's all they mean. <laughs> I could just believe them that they like me, that they want to hang out. That practice of believing people, it can feel very risky, especially because we do know that there are, there's often subtext with people. However, what have we got to lose by taking them at face value? We could feel all the anxiety and be proved wrong, or we could feel no anxiety and have them clarify at a later date that they were actually feeling neglected and then we can feel what we feel then but why rush the process the next stage really is then after we've accepted that they are offering us something to ask for what they've offered if they've offered to help us move house we could take them up on that. And the final frontier for, for a lot of us, and one I'm still definitely working on, is to ask for what hasn't even been offered. That we've spent time thinking about what actually would be pretty reasonable to ask for support with, um, whether that's reasonable culturally or within the context and history of the relationship or the context and history of what you've given to the relationship um, so that this would be a request that could feel reciprocal in some way um, and actually ask for it before they've offered to do it, before they've seen the need. To actually acknowledge, and this maybe taps into again all that social capital piece, to tap into 
what we identify as a lack in us, not shame ourselves for it, but simply ask for what we need there. And then accept whatever reply they give. If they are not available, that does not negate the reasonableness of our request. If they say yes, accept it. Accept it with gratitude, but without shame. It's a process. And of course, I feel the need to add disclaimers here around where you have had history or experiences or even just a gut feeling with people that that they would have a tendency to use help as a form of control and this happens particularly around finances Um, but that's not everybody Um, and you'll know very often you'll have a gut sense of who in your life you need to keep quite islandy with um, so as to maintain autonomy. What I'm talking about here are reciprocal relationships. Relationships where you both have something to give each other and you are both wanting and willing to build equal relationship. That for third culture kids it's often very, very much a process for us to trust that we have something to bring and trust that um, our need is is allowed actually and isn't going to count against us somehow and it's often a practice because we have emotional wounds that get bruised and triggered and poked Um, so gentleness always thank you for listening Um, take care of you I'll see you next time bye